This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, thank you, Joe. I want to, uh, now that we're back safely from France, just want to share with you some thoughts about our trip, um, specifically in connection to Tishabav and uh, Jewish life in general. Um, our first stop we went to, of course, when we landed in Paris was the Eiffel Tower, which was built by Gustave Eiffel, which interestingly is the most visited monument in the world. Actually, the most visited monument with an entrance fee in the world. Okay, And it's become the icon of France. Every ad, every picture, any symbol that wants to portray France, of course, has the image of the Eiffel Tower in it. But at the time that it was built, it was considered an atrocity of uh, an atrocious architectural building. It was built for the World Fair, and they were planning on tearing it down. And what's amazing is, here France has 2,000 years of history. It had kings, it had monarchs, it had dynasties, it had sovereignty, it has art, it has culture, it has sculptors, it has painters. And what represents the country? An atrocious eyesore of architecture that's only 130 years old. I mean, you would think that a country of such... Uh, renowned history can be symbolized by something a little bit more meaningful than something that was created only 130 years ago. But it just goes to show that all the culture and all the art and all the sculpture, it's reflected and summed up in an atrocious recent building. And it sort of symbolizes the idea that the culture of the Umay Sa'olam is Havel Havolem. Like it says... Uh, all the things that we sometimes get excited about and drawn after when you pull away the veil, what's behind it is not 2,000 years of art and culture. It's all empty. It's an Eiffel Tower, which is an, atro- an, an atrocity of architecture. Um, it's very interesting we went to Versailles, which was the palace of uh, all the various kings, all the different King Louis. And uh, we know that when the Chida went to the Tower of London, his comment was that if this is the wealth and material fortune for those who violate the will of Hashem, Allah has kama v'kama, how much... Uh, how much reward and hatava and bounty and wealth and riches are in store for those who fulfill the will of Hashem? The, the reaction of the Chida was, Im kach, So I think uh, the same thing, you go to Versailles, the, the lavishness of the palace, the real life-size paintings, the gaudiness of the gold and the... Uh, designs and the furniture and the furnishings, it's uh, beyond description. I mean, the gardens, the intricate gardens, um, taking up acres and acres. So the first thing a person has to think, okay, this is a mashal to Eilam Abba. 
if this is the reward given to La'ivrei Ritzoinai, it's like when Rabbi Akiva saw the success of Rome. Rabbi Akiva laughed. Rabbi Akiva says, In La'ivrei Ritzoinai kach, La'ivrei Ritzoinai, La'ivrei Ritzoinai, so the uh, material success of the wicked kings of the nations of the world are a mashal to Eilam Haba. Now it's also another, uh, there's another very important lesson that we can learn from here. A number of the kings who waited decades and decades to build this palace and to refurbish it and to renovate it, when they got into the palace... They were, they were assassinated the next day. It's a fact. A number of the kings, after waiting 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, when they finally enjoyed it, when they finally were ready to enjoy it, they were taken out of this world. And that's something always to bear in mind. Uh, how often we get caught up um, amassing our fortune, amassing, building the house, that takes so long to, to put together, and by the time you're old enough, by the time the years have passed, you know, there's no time anymore to enjoy it. So it, it really just highlights the uh, transitory nature of this world, and not to get caught up and waste our time in, in an oilam that we don't even know if we'll be around to enjoy. It's interesting, a uh, number of the painters, how do they paint these... Uh, the art on the ceiling, they mounted, uh, often they mounted the canvas onto the ceiling, and the painters would be up there on the ceiling in an uncomfortable uh, position for weeks, for months, and when they finished this otherworldly art, they were so anxiety-ridden and so full of stress that many of the painters committed suicide as soon as they finished so, you know, sometimes you look at the architecture, you look at the sculpture, and say, wow, what a, what a work of genius. Yeah, but the person also had to not only give their um, heart and soul to it, but literally give their life in order to produce it. <clears throat> um, another very uh, moving thought. We know that here in our shiram we spent many, many weeks speaking about Rashi, his contribution through his commentary, uh, the death of Rashi. We spoke about Rashi's students, Rabbeinu Simcha, Rabbeinu Shmaya. We spoke about Rashi's son-in-laws, the Rivan, Rabbeinu Yehuda Bar Nasan, and Rabbeinu Meir, and Rashi's grandchildren, the Rashbam, the Rivam, Rabbeinu Tam, Rashi's great-grandson, the Rihazakein, Rashi's great-great-grandson, Rabbeinu Elchanan. Rashi's great-great-great-grandson, Rabbeinu Shmuel. And this edifice, this family, is known as the base Rashi. And it's really amazing that, in a certain sense, more than Rashi's contribution as a parshan, the Ibn Ezra calls him parshan dasa, the great explicator of law, and transcending Rashi's commentary on Chumash, may be even Rashi's family, the family that he produced. And we discussed this, that Rashi dedicated a lot of his uh, energies to his, his personal family. He would come into shul with a child riding on his shoulders. 
Rashi uh, wrote very endearingly to his own mishpacha. And what's amazing is, here we know the greatness of Rashi's commentary to Shas and to Chumash, but his, in a way, Rashi's greatest legacy is his own personal family and reminds us how much energy we need to invest in ensuring the physical, emotional, and of course, most importantly, the spiritual welfare of our progeny, of our family, which ultimately, uh, when all is said and done, is uh, our, our greatest contribution. We went to a very interesting place, which I don't know um, how many people appreciated, but uh, I didn't want to miss this place. Um, even a little secret, we gave up going to a shul in one, in one area uh, to visit a place in Provence called Pointe de Garde. Now Pointe de Garde is an incredible Roman aqueduct that they built between the year 60 and 80 of the Common Era. It's a massive aqueduct that brought 9 million gallons of water daily from uh, the mountains to the low-lying areas. And it's a, it's a work of incredible, it's an architectural uh, wonder. It's one of the historic sites of the world. And later on, when it stopped functioning as an aqueduct, it was used as a toll bridge. And it's really... Um, a marvelous structure, a really an awe-inspiring structure. And when you think about when it was constructed, it was constructed between the years 60 and 80 AD. Uh, we call it CE, and which is really the time of the Chorban Beis HaMikdash. And, you know, we have an idea that the sovereignty and the Malchus of the nations of the world really belongs to us, but they've co-opted it from us. You know, there's a question the Maral asks, why is it that Yishmael is not counted as one of the four Malchios? And one of the answers the Maral gives is because the definition of a Malchus is a kingdom that usurps its power and royalty from the Jewish people. And when the Babylonians destroyed the temple, <clears throat> they destroyed our temple and they co-opted our Malchus for themselves, which is really the Malchus Shamayim. And then when the Persians came and they conquered the Babylonians, they took the Babylonian sovereignty, which is our sovereignty. And then the Greeks came, and they took the Persian power, which is really <clears throat> the Babylonian power, which is really our power. And then finally, the Romans came, <clears throat> and they took the sovereignty of the Greeks, who took the sovereignty of the Persians, took the sovereignty of the Babylonians, who took our power. So in other words, Rome has our power. Yishmuel is not considered to have our power, they have their own independent sorts of power. That is why the Gemara says in Megillah, if somebody says Caesarea is built up and Jerusalem is built up, you don't believe them. If someone says neither are built up, you don't believe them. But if someone sells, says Yerushalayim is built up and Caesarea not, or vice versa, you do believe them. Because there's one source of power, and it either it rests in the hands of the Jewish people where it should rest, or it rests in the hands of Rome. So to go to a structure of great majesty and grandeur that was built precisely at the time of the destruction of the second Mesa Mikdash, that means that that is our glory and they stole it. They usurped it. They took it for themselves. And really it's a very ha- haunting imagery of covered Yisrael that has been taken away from us 
and been co-opted by the nations of the world. So to me, that's what the uh, point de garde represents. And I'll end off with uh, one uh, very important thought, which I think is uh, relevant and a chidosh for the slicha, for the kinas. We know kina memalef is kina shali srufa ba'esh, the kina that mourns the burning of 24 cartloads of shas in the streets of Paris in the year 1242. We discussed this on Monday before the trip, and I want to share with you uh, an original thought. You know, I've been thinking lately, you know, of course in the Kinnis we're going to mourn the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed on Tisha B'av. And I even understand why we mourn the death of the Asar Haruge Malchus, the Gemara tells us, Shkula, Misas, Tzadikim, Kisrefas, the death of the righteous is equal to the burning of the temple. And <clears throat> there's an idea, uh, we're going, we'll talk about the Crusades in another segment, that all Jewish tragedy is somehow linked back to the Chorban, especially if it's um, tragedy that's inflicted upon us by the reigning powers of the world. But I've been thinking... Why mourn the burning of Shas on Tisha B'av? Is that really such a relevant disaster that we should mourn it on Tisha B'av? Why mourn the, the burning of Shas on Tisha B'av? You want to mourn Chorbin? I understand that. That's related to the destruction of the Temple. You want to mourn the death of the righteous? I get that. But is the burning of Shas, yes, it was a great tragedy, is that really relevant to Tisha B'av? Is Tisha B'av the time to mourn for? I mean, what is its connection to Tisha B'av? And I remembered one little detail which actually makes this whole thing pretty frightening. You know what the most misrepresented and misunderstood concept in Judaism? Sinas Chinam. Baseless hatred. Where we always say, why can't we all get along? Why can't we all stop fighting, why can't we um, put our arms around each other and sing happy songs. You know, Rabbi Yonis and Ibishitz writes, that's not the real Sinas Chinam. You know what the real Sinas Chinam is? People who hate rabbis. People who hate Tamide Chachamim. And don't say, I don't know any such people. Uh, all the time, people say, oh, yeah, that guy sitting next to me in shul, he's a real Talmud Chacham. Or, but the rabbi of my shul, or the, the Rashi Yeshivas, or the Tamil Chachamim, who are Manhigim, they don't know what they're doing. How often do people say that? How often do people say that they know better? Says Rabbi Yonah Sinaibish, that Sinas Chinam is the hatred that the Hamoin Am has for Tamil Chachamim. And let's think about why the Shas was burnt in 1242. We know that Rabbi Hillel of Verona was there at the burning of the Shas and he said that uh, he was haunted knowing that in the very same place where the Shas was burnt a little bit earlier, the people tattled on the works of the Rambam. And they said about the works of the Rambam that the works of the Rambam contain heresy and they're 
the works of the Rambam are against the Christian church. And because of that, the works of the Rambam were reviewed and they were found to be heretical. And because they were found to be heretical, they burnt the works of the Rambam in the very same uh, city square. And in that very same city square where we stood, by the way, right in front of the Hotel de Ville, shortly after, they burnt the Shas. Says Rabbi Verona, you know why they burnt the Shas? Hashem was standing up for the honor of the Rambam. Because, now by the way, it started because uh, there were other Chachamim that didn't agree with the Rambam. There were great Rishonim. Rabbi Shleim Amin Ahar, Aman Palier, Rabbi Nuyayna, they did not agree with the works of the Rambam, but then the laymen got involved and they submitted the works of the Rambam for review and the works of the Rambam were burned. And in the very same spot where the works of the Rambam were burned, they burnt the Shas. Says Rabbi Verona, it was Mida Kenegad Mida. Marv Rabbi Isai, do you know why we include Kinnam Mem Aleph in the Kinnas? Because Kinnam Mem Aleph shows us the quintessential example, not of Jewish tragedy, but of Sinas Chinam. Huh? What's Sinas Chinam? Hatred toward the Tamidei Chachamim. You know to who? The Rambam! The Rambam! You know why we have Kinnamem Aleph? Kinnamem Aleph is the most disastrous representation of Sinas Chinam. You know who they hated? You know who the Jews hated? They hated the Rambam. And you know what? If the Beis HaMikdash is not built, it's not because of the Sinas Chinam that we talk about, that the sister-in-law can't get along with the other sister-in-law, and she didn't invite her to the Simcha. We're talking about a... a a uh, much more severe form of sinas chinam. We're talking about sinas chinam to the rabbis. You know, at an, a, a recent Agoda convention, somebody said, you know why there's so many kids that go off the derach? Because the derach has become so narrow that who could even stand on it anymore? You know, the derach that has been created of what you can do and what you can wear and what you can think is so narrow that what do you expect? It's like a tightrope. But unfortunately, it's become the same way with which Chachamim people respect. Yeah, of course I, I respect Tamir Chachamim. But only if they have this kind of hat, and this kind of sock, and they learn Toysus this kind of way, and they think about Eretz Yisrael this way, but otherwise, they're Mamish Ame Haaretz, and I don't respect them. The tightrope of what a, a Tamachacham has to walk for people to consider them, a Tamachacham has become so narrow that that's the Sinas Chinam that the Gemara is talking about. And the Rabbi Yonasin defines that the Sinas Chinam mentioned in the Gemara and Gittin by Kamsa Bar Kamsa is a Sinah that they had to the Chachme Yisrael. <clears throat> and that's a very frightening element of Kinam Aleph, Shali Sufa Ba'esh. I'll share with you an idea about the kinna of the Crusades, but that will be uh, that will be for this uh, segment. Okay. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.